This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Kyle. And I'm Emily. And this is the week of May 31st through June 4th. This is Maya and Bialik's first week as guest host. The winnings this week will be matched by Jeopardy uh, as a donation to the National Alliance on Mental Illness, which is great. And I thought Maya and Bialik has done a really great job. Oh, um, yeah. Yeah. She's done very well. Yeah. I think a lot of the buzz I heard was people sort of expecting her to do well, but I think she she seems to have outperformed expectations. Um, mm. Yeah. So on Monday, May 31st, we have the contestants Kevin Hirsch, an attorney from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, Eliza Cope, an elementary school science teacher originally from Boston, Massachusetts, and Amanda Gansky, a product marketing manager from Austin, Texas, whose three-day cash winnings total $53,199. And we have the Jeopardy categories, souvenirs, hats in books. There is an I in team, I in quotation marks. These are teams that have an I somewhere in their names, which that's a lot of teams to choose mm-hmm. from. Not quite a constellation. The Shape of You and Mother. There's not anything going on with these category names is there there's like when there are two weird ones at not, the end not that i'm aware of yeah very well might be okay i was a little perplexed at one word of the 400 dollars clue in that category um the clue was a hippopotamus nicknamed william is the mascot of the fifth avenue outpost of this venerable new york city museum a replica of him makes a good souvenir. Um, and I recognize that uh, that's the Met, the Metropolitan Museum of Art. I'm not really sure why they used the word outpost, because I think of outpost as being like that there's a main location somewhere else. Is that a small military camp or position at some distance from the main force, a remote part of a country <laughs> or empire? Yeah, no, like the, the Fifth Avenue location is is where the the bet museum is there's you know that's it that's yeah. the that's the place it's uh, fortified with artists yeah and other um, militants yeah it didn't it didn't mess anyone up eliza got the got the clue but um but yeah i was i was sort of perplexed about why the word outpost was in there yeah not to be bizarre. too nitpicky we get the first daily double in the not quite a constellation category which i, I enjoyed this category i thought it was um fairly fairly simple astronomy but it's at the $800 level Eliza finds it it's pick number 19 she is at 2800 uh, Amanda's at 5000 and Kevin is at 1200 and she wagers 1300 she gets the clue the winter triangle spans stars and constellations from Betelgeuse to Procyon to this bright star in Canis Major and she gets that correct with what is serious mm-hmm. so so at the end of the Jeopardy round, Amanda is still at 5,000, Eliza is up to 5,100, and Kevin is in the lead at 5,600. We get the double Jeopardy categories, It's All in the Past, Possessive Geography, Same First and Last Letter, He Won an Oscar Playing a Real Person, 
Yeah, right. That was a it's quite a title. Uh, horse cents, but cents as in like hundredths of a dollar. And that's my philosophy. Which started out with, oh no, okay, it was it was two Frenchmen in a row uh, at the at the four hundred and eight hundred dollar level of philosophy, which mm-hmm. then sort of th- uh, confused me because then we switched away from the French philosophers, and I had to remember that it was philosophers in general, not French <laughs> not philosophers French specifically. Mm-hmm. I should actually have looked this up before making the podcast. Um, at the $1,200 level of possessive geography, we had a very understandable wrong guess. The clue there is in 1634, the first English settlement in what's now this state was called St. Mary's, but wasn't named for the same woman as the colony. Oh, oh I get it. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. So St. Mary is like St. Mary, like the Virgin Mary. Um, yeah. But I think Amanda maybe had the same thought process as I did, which is we're looking for a colony, not Mary. Right. Uh, and so she said, what is Virginia? But they were looking for Maryland. I felt that like that was kind of almost a stupid answer question. Right. Because it's like, we gave you Mary. Can, can you put a land on it? Yep. Like uh, that categories where we find daily double number two as the fourth pick at the $800 level. Kevin finds this one. He's at 7,200 to Amanda's 3,800 and Eliza's 5,500. He wagers 2,000. The daily double wagers were all pretty small this week. Mm -hmm. I think we we got one 4,000 on Friday, but mostly they they were keeping it pretty conservative, all of them. He gets the clue, this Massachusetts island was likely named for the daughter of explorer Bartholomew Gosnold. He gets it correct with what is Martha's Vineyard. Yeah. I've never been to Martha's Vineyard. I don't think I have either. Yeah. I've heard it's nice. Yeah, I've heard that. Daily Double number three is in the It's All in the Past category at the $1,200 level. Eliza finds this one. She is at 8,300. Amanda's at 9,000 and Kevin is at 14,400. This is uh, pick number 20, so running out of clues on the board. Uh, and she only wagers 2,000. And she gets the clue. Mobutu Sisi Seiko amassed a $5 billion fortune ruling what's now the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which he renamed this. She's, it seemed like she wasn't sure, but she got it correct with what is Zaire. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know. I feel like it came to her mind and then she... I don't know what she was thinking, but... I feel like you wouldn't randomly guess Zaire. I feel like she mm-hmm. knew that that was associated with DRC. Yeah. But she got it, so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Kevin's in the lead with 16,400. Amanda's at 12,600. Eliza has 11,100. And we have the final Jeopardy categories, the business of television. And the clue, the day it debuted in 1980, this network with an Italian name aired a Carnegie Hall celebration of Aaron Copeland's 80th birthday. Eliza was not able to come up with anything. She just has what is and then a blank. And she's wagered 1501, dropping her to 9599. Uh, She was trying to get above Amanda. Amanda has wagered everything, which is not strategically ideal here. But she has the correct response. What is Bravo? taking her up to 
200. Um, and then Kevin has what is Bravo. He is correct. Uh, he has made a cover bet. This is the kind of situation for which you make a cover bet, right? Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not usually strategically correct for the person in second place to wager every dollar they have. Um, mm-hmm. But they might. They might do it. And if you're in first place and uh, you haven't made a cover bet, you're going to be in trouble. He's made a cover bet of 8801. Uh, thrilling television. Amanda's at 25,200. Kevin is at 25,201. He wins by only $1. Only a dollar. <laughs> only a dollar. Only a dollar separates the winner and the non winner. But Jeopardy That's viewers normal. get very. It's totally. Yes. <laughs> uh, I mean, it doesn't actually happen that frequently on Jeopardy because, because usually the second place person doesn't wager right. everything and get it right. But like, that is the reason for the cover bet. Right. It, it amuses me. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. when, <laughs> when casual viewers are like, buy only a dollar. Like, you know, they that. all looked at each other's scores and did some math. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, uh, with 25,201, Kevin is our winner coming back on Tuesday. Mm-hmm. And on Tuesday, we have the contestants Dominic Rios, a teacher from San Diego, California, Robin Lozano, a hospitality executive from San Antonio, Texas, and Kevin Hirsch, an attorney from Fort Lauderdale, Florida, who just won $25,201. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, Peru, scientists, not to be confused, household brands, making fetch happen, TV title pairs, and Animal expression fill-in. I assumed we were not going to get a direct reference to the, the source material for Making yeah. Fetch Happen in the Making Fetch Happen category. Like, I assumed it was just going to be a category about fetching stuff. Yeah, which it was for four out of five clues. Right. And then at the $600 level, we have in this movie, Regina says, Gretchen, stop trying to make fetch happen. It's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. That is Mean Girls. It is the best movie. <laughs> Robin gets this one correct. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it did surprise me that they were just like... They don't normally do that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> at the $1,000 level of Peru, we had the clue, this lake, that's 12,500 feet above sea level, is on the border of Peru and Bolivia. Robin got that one as well. That is Lake Titicaca which is one of those things that you want to be really sure you've got it right before you say it on television. Yeah. <laughs> just, just memorize whatever amount of information you need to about that lake to like, not say it what it's like, actually like, you know, Lake Huron or something. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because if it's not right, you, you've, you've made yourself a meme. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, Daily Double number one is at the... level of scientists. Um, It's the 12th pick. And Robin finds it. At this point, she has 4,400. She's the only one with any money. Dominic is at zero. Kevin is 800 in the red. Robin wagers 2,000 and gets the clue. I look at the world and I notice it's turning thanks to this man who studied at the University of Krakow in the 1490s. She tried, who is Brahe, Tycho Brahe? Um, that's incorrect. We're looking for Nicholas Copernicus. Nicholas. Yeah. Copernicus is Polish. Mm-hmm. Brahe was Danish? I think that's correct. Dutch? Danish. I think he's Danish. D- I think Danish. Yeah. Yeah. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, 
Um, Robin is in the lead with 6,000. Uh, the other two have made recoveries. Kevin's at 2,000. Dominic is at 2,400. And we have the double jeopardy categories. U.S. history, imported from Italy. Authors when young. Grammy-winning directors. Quotations. And words of wisdom. The first pick of this round in the U.S. history category at the $1,200 level. The first mass inoculation of children against this disease began in Pittsburgh in 1954. That's polio. Mm-hmm. We talked about that last we week. About, yes, we did. Very recently. Mm-hmm. And the second pick is actually something I learned, I guess, about a year ago. Well, it had to be more than a year ago. Two years ago? I don't know. It's in the imported from Italy category at the $800 level. The San Marzano type of this is prized because it grows in the rich volcanic soil of Mount Vesuvius. Uh, Dominic got it. Th- those are tomatoes. We we have like one truly like, you know, certified Neapolitan pizza place in Denver. And in order to be truly certified, you have to use San Marzano tomatoes. Hmm. And you have to use a particular type of cheese from a particular type of animal from a particular place and your water has to have the right ph balance that you put in the dough it's like it's it's very precise they went Hmm. through the whole the whole rigmarole of it but that's why i learned about those tomatoes that is fascinating oh uh we had we had Quincy Jones also over in Grammy winning directors. This yes. well, sort of this actress was Grammy worthy for directing Quincy, a film about her father, a music le- legend. That is Rashida Jones. Kevin got that one. Mm-hmm. Quincy is very good. I have watched it dozens of times now because I often show it in my music classes. Oh, nice. Uh, we get daily double number two in the U.S. history category at the sixteen hundred dollar level. Kevin finds it. Uh, pick number eight. He's at 4,400, Robin's at 8,800, and Dominic is at 3,600. And he wagers 1,500, which is less than the value of the clue. I would have gone Mm. more. Yeah. Especially that far behind the lead. He gets the clue. The Louisiana Purchase Exposition opened April 30th, 1904 in this non-Louisiana city. And he works it out that it is St. Louis. Mm Mm-hmm. I got to that one because I had researched all of the world's fairs. That's right. For uh, for the deep dive I did a while back. Yes, I seem to recall that. Yeah, <laughs> there were a lot of world's fairs. There were a lot of world's fairs. <laughs> but hey, now I know them, and maybe some of y'all do too. Yeah, um, that's the goal. Uh-huh. And daily double number three is almost at the very end of the round. It's the twenty ninth pick. It's at the two thousand dollar level of authors when young. Robin finds it at this point. She has eleven thousand six hundred. Kevin's at 6,300, Dominic's at 5,200. She wagers 3,000, which, if she had gotten it right, would have taken her into lock position, I think, right? The last one's on the board is a $400 level clue. Mm-hmm. So imagining that Kevin gets up, gets that one and gets up to 6,700. Yeah, that wouldn't have been enough. Yeah. So she gets the clue, born Chloe Wofford, she converted to Catholicism at age 12 and added the name Anthony to hers from St. Anthony of Padua. Robin can't come up with anything. Uh, They're looking for Toni Morrison. Yeah, I never knew that. I didn't know where the Toni came from. Mm -mm. Yeah. Uh, So she drops down and uh, Dominic is able to pick up the last clue. So going into Final Jeopardy, Kevin is at 6,300, Robin is at 8,600, and Dominic is at 5,600. They get the Final Jeopardy category around the world, and the clue, 
In the 1860s, a zoologist proposed that this island was once part of a lost continent he dubbed Lemuria. Or Lemuria, if you want to mm-hmm. get more like that. Dominic put what Galapagos? <laughs> what? Galapagos. What? What Galapagos? What, what Galapagos? Uh, that's incorrect. Uh, he wagered 3500 Kevin got it correct with what is Madagascar? Uh, and he wagered everything. We were informed that that idea was accepted for a time. Um, clearly no longer. Mm. Uh, yeah. So he wagered everything and moves up to 12600 which is where a cover bet comes in handy again. Mm-hmm. Uh, Robin got it correct and wagered 4001 So by the margin of just a dollar, she's just the a champion. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Going into Wednesday. Yes. So on Wednesday, we have Lydia Glaw, a biomedical engineer from Gaithersburg, Maryland. John Alba Cutler, an English professor from Wilmette, Illinois. And Robin Lozano, a hospitality executive from San Antonio, Texas, whose one-day cash winnings total $12,601. And we have the Jeopardy round categories, the Bible. That's a favorite topic of mine. European (laughs) history. Describing the film trilogy, The Giving Tree, I'd Like to Buy, and A Vowel, in quotation marks. I'd like to buy a vowel. Ha ha ha. It's a, it's a, it's a Wheel of Fortune category joke. I feel joke. like they've done that before, though. I feel like I've seen these categories before. Not mm. to say they can't recycle categories, yeah, but I feel maybe. like I've seen this joke before. Yeah. Um, what was really interesting this time is that everything in I'd like to buy rhymed with vowel. That's a good point. That is interesting. I mean, obvious. I it's got to be intentional. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we've got. I'd like to buy a flodalin. Flop. Flo, I don't know. A, a terracloth. Yeah, this like, from IKEA. That's a towel. I'd like to buy a towel. I'd like to buy. Yeah. A I'd cowl. like to buy a cowl. I'd like to yeah. buy a trowel. I'd, I'd, I'd like, like to, to buy <laughs> Colin Powell. <laughs> <laughs> we can't buy human beings. Uh, and then we've got. I'd wow, like to buy Emily. a dowel. <laughs> Uh, yes. Um, yeah, oh, guess it's time I got around to reading My American Journey, the 19... 19- Maybe we're buying My American Journey, the 1995 autobiography of Colin Powell. I don't know. Jeez. <laughs> I, I am a little perplexed that I'd like to... In the I'd like to buy category, they have... Like the the correct response is Colin Powell, right? Like that, yeah, that seems like seems like it doesn't quite fit the category. Maybe an oversight. Except that the category is secretly things that rhyme with vowel. Yeah. Um, we had a fun triple stumper in the European history category at the four hundred dollar level. The second czar of this name freed the serfs in Russia in eighteen sixty one. Uh, Robin guessed who is Nicholas. Lydia guessed who is Peter. John guessed who is Ivan, which are all names of czars. Mm-hmm. But this is Alexander. So Alexanders, yes. the Alexanders were in the 1800s. All of Russian history is a mystery to me. I can't understand it. I, I, I've i tried. I'll keep trying. Eventually I'll get there. Um. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, that's Alexander II. Um, the Daily Double comes in the next pick. It's the $600 level of European history. It's at pick number eight. John finds it. He's at 2600 Robin and Lydia are both back at negative 400, so he has quite a lead, and he wagers 2,000. He gets the clue, this nation that was formed at the end of World War I broke in two in 1993. And he guesses what is Serbia and Montenegro, but uh, that is Czechoslovakia. Mm-hmm. So he drops down to just 600. 
there were a lot of things that used to be countries this week, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so at the end of the Jeopardy round, uh, Robin has gotten herself into the lead at 7,000. John is at 4,400, but Lydia is still struggling at negative 800. We get the double Jeopardy categories, Islands, It's All About Her, Art Movements, Potpourri, New to the OED, and Pop Psychology. Uh, pop Psychology was not about popular psychology. It was about psychological terms coming up in pop music. Mm-hmm. Such as Jimi Hendrix, Manic Depression at the $1,200 mm-hmm. level. Yeah. It's a um, good song. Yes. We did have a pretty fun one, uh, a clue in the potpourri category at the $1,200 level. I don't know why this tickled me so much, but it, Brad Keselowski, uh, a NASCAR driver, presented the clue. And was, I'm Brad Keselowski, uh, the pit crew guy hauling a 20-pound piece of equipment to help change my four tires is called this. Also the last name of an X-Men actor. <laughs> <laughs> John got it with a Jackman, which I, I just, I don't know why that tickled me so much. Yeah. <laughs> It's interesting they decided to specify X-Men for Hugh Jackman because he's done a bunch. I mean, he, he, I guess, I guess he's probably still best known for X-Men. Yeah, I mean, but also probably to just point you somewhere because if they just said the name of an actor, you'd be like, oh, what the f- how? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't seen The Greatest Showman, but I think I, I, I associate him with The Greatest Showman now mm. more than with X-Men. We touched on the $800 level of It's All About Her when I talked about Kenya a while mm-hmm. back. In this 1937 memoir, Isaac Dennison told of her life in Kenya where she managed a coffee plantation uh, that's out of Africa. Mm-hmm. Daily Double number two comes up in that It's All About Her category. Oh, and this one also connects to a recent deep dive. Recent-ish. Time has no mm-hmm. meaning. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, it's at the $2,000 level. It's the 16th pick. And Robin finds it. She has 9,800 to John's 8,000. Lydia's at negative 800 at this point. And Robin wagers 2,000 and gets the clue. The autobiography of Alice B. Toklas is, to- is less about Alice and more about this woman, her life partner who wrote the book. And uh, she knows that is Gertrude Stein. Mm-hmm. Maybe she listens to our podcast. Um, Marianne Borer talked about Gertrude Stein when she was a guest. Yeah. Yes, she did. Uh, And the third Daily Devil is in the art movements category at the $800 level. Uh, John finds this one uh, as well. Uh, He's at $9,600. Robin is at $11,800. Lydia is still in the red at negative $800. This is pick number 19. And he wagers $3,000. The clue is, with work like indefinite divisibility... Eve Tungi helped import this European movement to the United States. Uh, and they showed a picture of it. Pretty obvious. He got it correct with what is surrealism. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was very Dali-esque. Yes, I thought I so, too. Some. Yes, indeed. Uh, so, at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Robin is in the lead again at 13,000. John is doing pretty well for himself at 11,000. Lydia's made it out of the red. She's at 2,800. And we have the final Jeopardy category, newspaper names. And the clue, used as a newspaper name from New York to San Diego, it was an ancient Roman official who represented the people's interests. Lydia has it correct with what is Tribune. 
she's wagered 1241, which I assume must have some significance for her. Well, it takes her up to 4041. John has responded uh, correctly. What is a tribune? He writes, um, he's wagered 8,700. That's probably too much. Yeah. Yeah. We're expecting Robin to, if she misses, to drop down to just about 4,000. So if you're in second place, you probably want to wager, and you want to think about Lydia potentially doubling up, you probably want to wager, like, not much over 5,000. Yeah. But whatever, it works for him. He goes up to 19,700. Robin couldn't come up with it, tried what is Senator, and she's made a cover bet of 9,001, which drops her down to 39.99. She's dropped into third place, and John is our winner going into Thursday. And on Thursday, we have the contestants, Julia Markham Cameron, an attorney from Brooklyn, New York, Grace Jeffrey, a global health and environmental science graduate from Virginia Beach, Virginia, and John Alba Cutler, an English professor from Wilmette, Illinois, who just won $19,700. We get the Jeopardy round categories, fathers of invention, eight-letter words, license to whatever, e-sports with e in quotation marks, Barnes and Noble. And the Daily Double comes up pretty early this round mm. as the third pick of eight-letter words. It's at the $600 level. Grace finds it. She has $400 and wagers all of them. She's gotten the $400 level. Julia has 200 And John is still at zero at this point. Probably best to go with the full thousand. But either she didn't think of it or she didn't want to risk being in the red, which... I sort of I get from a psychological standpoint. Mm-hmm. She gets the clue. One of the witches in Macbeth refers to it as a charmed pot. And she gets that one correct with cauldron. Mm-hmm. At the $200 level of fathers of invention, I had some hesitation. Grace did fine, though. Um, plant burrs sticking to a dog's fur inspired Swiss inventor, Georges de Mestral, to create this fastener brand. I guess it had the word brand in it. It's Velcro. In the process of like buying children's shoes, I have come to realize that Velcro is like a brand name, um, and mm-hmm. so a lot of shoe companies will market, you know, will market their shoes with like it has a hook and loop fastener, which is like the non-brand name for the type of fastener that Velcro is. Right. So I I had a, a moment of hesitation, like, oh, are you supposed to say Velcro or are you supposed to say hook and loop? Yep. Um, but they were looking for the brand, so Velcro was correct. Right. At the bottom of that category, $1,000 level, we had a triple stumper. Last name of the 19th century Belgian who never heard of jazz, but invented one of its main instruments. Uh, Julia rang in, I think, before she... <laughs> I think I, it seemed like she, she rang in thinking she'd get to the answer, uh, and then didn't because she kind of panicked and said, What is the Sousa? <laughs> <laughs> Which was uh, charming, but not correct. Grace rang in and said, Who is Saxon? But it's actually just sax. Another another Adolf. We talked about a couple of Adolfs last week. Adolf Sax. Mm, yeah. It's the inventor of the saxophone. So so it's not a Saxon phone, Grace. It's mm-hmm. just a saxophone. Adolf Sax, he should have died a lot before he got around to inventing the saxophone. Not because like he oh, deserved tell us it. That's how you like, really feel. No, no, no. He, not saying he deserved it. I'm just like he was in a number of like terrible accidents and sustained a bunch of injuries and like weird things happen he was an interesting person Hmm. but 
it's not my deep dive week. So filing away a note here. Uh, um no i'm not gonna do a deep dive on adolf sax uh okay last last uh comment from me is that this this war has come up a number of times and i i am like i'm sort of over the way that the jeopardy writers clue it uh at the thousand dollar level of noble henry v made humphrey plantagenet duke of gloucester before humphrey went off to serve in this protracted war john got that one it's the hundred years war every time the hundred years war comes up the clue is like it's the really long one yeah Um, can you name a long war (laughs) can you name a longer war (laughs) yeah yeah i i feel like yeah i get what you're saying yeah at at the thousand dollar level i i think i would I would expect people to yeah. get it from Henry V, like, right. it, like, like, there's enough here without being mm-hmm. like, it's a protracted war. Yeah, uh, I agree. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, Julia's in the lead with 5,400, John's at 3,000, Grace is at 1,800. And we have the double Jeopardy categories, American monuments around the world, 20th century books and authors. Next in line, Nobel Prize oddities playing president, and starts and ends with H. And we had a couple clues we didn't get to this round. Uh, We left the 2000 on the board in the next in line category and the starts and ends with H category. Mm -hmm. Uh, We had an unfortunate knowing the information but not reading the clue at the Mm. $400 level in the 20th century books and authors. Atticus Finch in this novel was inspired by the author's father, who was also an attorney, Grace got in first and said, who is Harper Lee? But they're asking for the uh, novel, not the author. And right. so Julia picked up the rebound with To Kill a Mockingbird. Mm-hmm. Julia also had a very strong start to the round. She did very, very well in the playing president category mm-hmm. uh, and got herself into a pretty significant lead pretty early on. Yes. Daily Double number two is in the... Nobel Prize oddities category at the $2,000 level. John finds it. Uh, he's at 7000 Grace is at 3800 Julia is at 12200 This is pick number 15. And he wagers 2000 which I feel like at that point... I know we say this a lot. We usually encourage people that, to bet more. Um, but this case mm-hmm. especially, you're significantly ahead of third place. And you're pretty far behind first place. I would say bet 5000 if you want to mm-hmm. catch up to first place. Or maybe bet it all, honestly. At this point, I'm just like, eh, bet it all on Daily Doubles all the time. Just bet yeah, it all. Just, just do it all the time. Always, <laughs> always, always show Live in. dangerously. Exactly. But he wages 2000 Gets the clue. 1948 had no Peace Prize winner. This man, who was nominated that year, was assassinated, and Nobels are rarely given posthumously. Uh, he's not able to get around to a guess, but that is Gandhi. Mm-hmm. Mahatma. Yes. Gandhi. Yeah. Oh, we had a funny moment in that category a few clues previous where they were looking for the response, the Big Bang, which is funny because Maya Bialik is guest hosting. So that was a that was a nice kind of moment. Yeah. Uh, Daily Double number three is in the 20th century books and authors category at the $1,600 level. And Julia finds it as the 19th pick. She's at 14,600 at this point to John's 5,000 and Grace's 3,400. She wagers just 2,000, although given the standings, I she, she would have been safe to go much bigger. 
Mm-hmm. She gets the clue, Lucy in this Forster novel. Charlotte, you mustn't spoil me. Of course you must look over the Arno too. She says, oh, golly, <laughs> which, <laughs> which is charming. And then she tries what is the Age of Innocence, uh, which is an Edith Wharton novel. Mm-hmm. Uh, the correct response here is A Room with a View. Because you wouldn't really be expected to know the plot points or really probably even the characters, maybe of Forster novels in like a lot of detail. They're, they're giving you a little bit of a hint uh, like, that references the title, right? Right. Check uh, out the view. Right? Yep. <laughs> yes. I've, I've joked around about my, uh, my Forster mnemonic that I picked up from a radio show. Uh, so this one, this one came to me, but not to Julia, but that's okay. She was in a huge lead. So now she's in still actually a pretty huge lead. Mm-hmm. The next in line category was, I thought, deceptively tricky. We had uh, the next D.C. Avenue after Independence Avenue and Constitution Avenue. That's Pennsylvania Avenue. They got that one. John got that one on the first try. I knew that one. Um, And then the Greek alphabet. They had Omicron Pi Rho. And Grace tried what is Tau. um, But that was Sigma. That was Mm -hmm. a triple stumper. And then we had... Um, at the 1200 Salt Lake City, Turin, Vancouver, John tried what is Nakano? Uh, N- Nagano, right? Uh, yeah, uh, I think it's Nagano. Nagano. Did he say Nakano? Did he say Nakano? I don't know. He said something a little weird. Anyway, Grace got it with Sochi as Winter Olympic host cities. And then at the $1,600 level, it says alphabetically, Xenon Eterbium, Etrium, and then nobody guessed, and the the end of round signal sounded, so that one turned into a triple stumper. Uh, they were looking for zinc, and my helpfully explained those are chemical elements, mm-hmm. um, which like I'm sure they all knew they were chemical elements, right? Like probably. It, it's just try like you want to be confident that you've thought of the right one. For me, at least, I was like, is there another one that ends in Y? Right. Or does it go to Z? And is there something before zinc? Anyway. Yeah. 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 So I, I don't think it's that they didn't recognize these three things that are obviously chemical elements. I think like... They just... Yeah, they were trying to think, is there another Y? You know, is there a Z before... Z? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Zandium. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Zanzibarium. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, John's at 5,000, Grace is at 3,800, and Julia is in a locked position at 16,200. To get the category 17th century Frenchman and the clue, Pope Urban VIII once said, if there is a god, this French minister will have much to answer for. If not, he had a successful life. Uh, (laughs) That's... So know, funny. Yeah, and also <laughs> weird coming from a pope, but also, I mean, historically, popes have been like we talked about some of them. Um, yeah, I feel like I feel like this pope was like and like just spent 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 several decades talking with people about about Pascal's wager. Right. <laughs> yeah. Like, probably. Well, hope you win that one. <laughs> right. Yep. If there is, or if there isn't, okay. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> uh, Grace put who is Cardinal Richelieu. Which is correct, and she wagered nineteen hundred. John also wrote, "Who was Richelieu?" He wagered forty nine ninety nine, so everything but a dollar. And uh, Julia also got Cardinal Richelieu and wagered two hundred fifty. 
Because mm-hmm. why not? I think uh, they all misspelled Richelieu in the same way with an I in the middle instead of an E. Is it an E? Okay, I, I actually e. was going to say, like, as I was thinking about this, I was like, I don't know how to spell this name. I know how to say it, and I know how to write illegibly enough to make it seem like I got it right. <laughs> <laughs> it's an important skill. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, well, it's, it's there. It's right. Do you need me to say it? I can say it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, but that means Julia wins going into Friday. So on Friday, June 4th, we have the contestants Whitney Sorensen, a content strategist from Draper, Utah. Susie O'Gorman, a homemaker from Mobile, Alabama. And Julia Markham Cameron, an attorney from Brooklyn, New York, whose one-day cash winnings total 16450 And we have the Jeopardy round categories. Magna Cartography. Death of a Literary Character. Failed Constitutional Amendments. Pieces of Games. Behind the Song. And all the small lings, L-I-N-G, in quotation marks. Are they making a reference to the Blink-182 song, or is that just where my mind went? I mean, maybe. It, it did pop into my mind as well, but... Okay. Yeah, but we we share a generation, so... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, Susie had a delightful accent. Yes. And it was fun to, uh, in the behind the song category at the $800 level... Um, the clue is with his lustrous locks, Motley Crue's Vince Neil is said to have inspired the dude in the title of this Aerosmith song. And Susie got it with dude looks like a lady. Mayim remarked that she didn't expect Susie to be the one to get that mm-hmm. one. <laughs> yeah. Real, uh, real stereotyping there. Mayim Bialik. Mm-hmm. Way to go. Yeah. Uh, we get the daily double in the next pick uh, that that's the category where they started. So the daily double is pick number five and Susie finds it uh, because she got the one before it. It's at the thousand dollar level. She is at 1400. Julie is at zero and Whitney's at 600 and she wagers 1400 and gets the clue in 1940. Woody Guthrie wrote this song because he was sick of hearing God bless America. And she gets correct with what is this land is your land. Most people stick with just kind of like the first verse or so of that song but it gets a little subversive as the verses go on yeah i mean as as woody guthrie <laughs> yeah. was known to do <laughs> yes indeed this game actually aired on saturday in the new york area uh wednesday or i think wednesday maybe tuesday had been preempted um and for whatever reason in our area they decided to just bump every game by one day and air friday's game on saturday to kind of catch up. Um, so I'd chosen my deep dive topic by that point, but I was sort of bummed about it when I saw the triple stumper at the thousand dollar level level of pieces of games. Um, that was two, four, eight, sixteen, thirty-two, and sixty-four are marked on the die called a doubling cube in this game. That's backgammon. I'm not a super talented backgammon player, um, but I like backgammon. And I sort of know it has an interesting history mm. and like interesting strategy stuff. Mm. So I, uh, I've sort of had in the back of my mind that like that would be a fun topic to research sometime, nice. but not this week, alas. Well, that's sad news that we're not learning about backgammon. The end of the Jeopardy round. 
Julia is in the lead at 6,000. Susie is at 4,400. Whitney's at 4,200. They stayed pretty close to each other. Uh, Susie was able to jump out to a lead, but the other two caught up by the end of that round. And uh, we get the double jeopardy categories African Americans, Ancient History, Ears to You, Working with Clay, Cinematic Cities and Towns, and A Quick Study. That quick study category proved to be deceptively complicated. Mm. They provide a word that means the study of something, and you have to come up with what the what the subject is. Mm-hmm. So we started off okay with gerontology. Susie got that one. She guessed what is the elderly or old people. Um, the study of aging. Uh, is what they were looking for, but that was that was close enough. She got that one. And then we had glossology, which I thought... I said language or accents, because hmm. the study of language itself is linguistics, mm-hmm. right? Um, uh, but Julia got it with... She said, what is spoken language? Le- well, she said, lang- what is language, spoken language? Let me actually see. Mayim didn't offer any more specific information yeah, the science of language or linguistics. Okay, so I think it is just like a synonym with linguistics, mm-hmm. maybe. And then we got stuck. We had a triple stumper at the $1,200 level. Xylology. Hmm. Julia tried what are xylophones, which you can sort of see Yeah. what she's doing there. Uh, then Susie tried what is tree bark. Uh, she was getting closer, and uh, Whitney didn't want to hazard a guess. Uh, that is the study of wood, right? Xylophone is like wood sound. Mm-hmm. Yep. <laughs> Selenology at 1600. Susie got that's the moon. And then nobody knew brontology was thunder. So rough go there. Yeah, those were, those were more obscure than normal for Jeopardy. But that was good. Mm-hmm. That was nice to see. Yeah, that's that's some stuff I don't know if I've ever seen come up on Jeopardy. Mm-hmm. Um, and brontology, I, like, I had no idea. I knew that. I, I made a connection to um, Brontosaurus, the dinosaur, but then I was like, I don't know what its name means, so that doesn't actually help at all. <laughs> Brontosaurus, I think, was considered not a dinosaur anymore mm-hmm. when I was growing up, and then they changed their minds, and now it is again. Like, they thought they had mismatched a skull to the wrong body, mm. so they were like, oh, Brontosaurus isn't a thing, never mind the patasaurus now right um but i believe that brontosaurus is back back baby yeah anyway uh daily double number two is in the cinematic cities and towns category at the 1200 dollar level and whitney finds it on the third pick um it's a super close game at this point she has 5000 julia's at 6000 susie's at 4800 and whitney wagers 2500 you are so tired of hearing us say this, but I would have gone bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> she gets the clue. When Nicole Kidman and Matthew Broderick move to this town in a 2004 remake, the neighborhood wives seem a tad robotic. And she knows that one. That is Stepford. Um, uh, Stepford wives. Mm-hmm. Have you seen either the original or the remake? Uh, I don't actually okay. think so. Okay. I've seen the original. I haven't seen the remake. That's uh, whew. it's um. I mean, I knew it was coming, but it was still spooky, jarring. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Uh, Daily double number three is pick number nineteen, 
It's in the ears to you category at the $1,200 level. Susie finds it. Uh, she's at 6,800. Third place behind Julia's 9,200 and Whitney's 8,300. She bets 4,000, which I think is a good wager. She gets a clue. The ear's semicircular canals help maintain this, partly from the Latin for balance. And she guesses what is cochlear or cochlea. That is incorrect. It helps maintain the equilibrium. Your semicircular mm-hmm. canals help you help you not fall over when you're walking. So she mm-hmm. drops way down. Yep. I got very frustrated with myself at the $2,000 level of African-Americans. Um, they had a picture, and then the clue, one of the great stunt pilots of the 1920s, she was the first African-American woman to earn her pilot's license. And I recognized her, and I knew it was Bessie something, mm-hmm. but I couldn't bring the last name to mind. Mm-hmm. So Bessie, Bessie Coleman. Coleman. Bessie Coleman. Yep. Yeah. So at the end of the double jeopardy round, Julia's in the lead with 12,800. Susie is at 7,600. Whitney is at 7,100. And we have the final jeopardy category, 17th century writing. And the clue, this 17th century work quotes the book of Job. Behold, the giants grown underwater and they that dwell with them. Whitney has tried what is the tempest uh thinking of the shakespeare play i guess shakespeare quoted the bible i see this kind of the connection of water mm-hmm. and sea themes to the tempest which is set on an island and you know but no that's not correct uh she wagered three thousand three hundred and thirty three dollars that's a fun number mm-hmm. so she drops to thirty seven sixty seven susie has responded, what is Gulliver's Travels? Um, I guess I see the connection there also. It's not a bad guess. She's wagered 3,000. Uh, Julia has tried, what is the Decameron? I actually can't remember very much about the Decameron, so I have no idea whether that's a good guess or not. I think she's um, about 300 years off. Yeah, and I don't, I don't remember enough about it to know whether kind of the Book of Job quote fits. No um, but yeah, that's that's not correct. Um, she's wagered three thousand, so she drops down to ninety eight hundred. Uh, they were looking for a Leviathan by Hobbes mm-hmm. here, which I don't actually know a whole lot about, but I do know that its title references um, the Leviathan, the kind of biblical sea creature. Mm-hmm. So I got to that one, but I can see how that was a a challenging final Jeopardy clue. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's one of the more obscure. I mean, it's, it's like a classic, but it's not one of the like top tier classics. I guess like the, the most obvious classics, you know? Yeah. It may have come to me more easily because I knew that Hobbes of Calvin and Hobbes was named after Thomas mm-hmm. Hobbes, the philosopher. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. And Calvin is named after John Calvin. Mm-hmm. Uh, neither of them has a very positive view of humanity. No. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyway, with 9,800, Julia is our two-day champion uh, with total winnings of 26,250. Um that's that's low for 2 days but hey she gets to play again and that is what counts. That is what counts. Yep. Mm-hmm. 
All right. Uh, this is the point in the middle of the episode where we remind you that we have a Patreon. Uh, it's patreon.com slash potentpotables. Truth be told, there's not that much stuff on there, um, but it does help us with our podcasting expenses. So if you like the podcast and want us to keep not losing money on it, you can go over and uh, throw us a couple of bucks a month. Um, much appreciated if you choose to do that. And there is some stuff on there. Um, I think we uh, we each took the uh, the Jeopardy test and talked about what we got and didn't get. Uh, our goat tournament recaps are on there. Um, some outtakes. So go check it out if you're interested. We also want to remind you to leave reviews and ratings. We don't have a whole lot of reviews coming in. It doesn't have to be that complicated. I was just telling Kyle that one time I uh, let my child leave a review by putting the emojis that she thought her favorite podcast host would appreciate. Um, so you can you can leave like maybe the unicorn emoji for me. I don't know what emojis Kyle likes. Um, uh, I don't want to. I don't want to say that in, in public. <laughs> Uh, all right <laughs> so y'all can go over and take a guess um or, or tap the stars if you if you would be so kind those are good emojis um, yeah <laughs> and uh more important than reviews or ratings or our patreon is doing something that matters for your community and our wider world um if you are not connected in any way with stuff or, or looking for places to get started or to you know to to do more um we like to recommend blacklivesmatter.com and communityjusticeexchange.org as places to um start getting connected yep so kyle do you have deep dive guesses yes okay are we talking about gandhi we're not talking about gandhi are we talking about czechoslovakia oh heck no dang it are we talking about <laughs> tony morrison i considered it but no All right. um thursday's game the category was new to the OED. Uh, it was at the $2,000 level. And the clue was the Henriad refers to four plays by this man. And nobody got that that was Shakespeare. I um, have had a very hard time getting my head around Shakespeare's history plays. And I thought, hey, they missed one about the Henriad, which I know is a thing. And that it's... Some of the Henry plays? All of the Henry plays? I don't know. Um, so Henry's involved, uh, I know that. Yeah, that's it's right there in the name. That part it's a gimme. Yeah, so I thought I'd I'd research like what like what is the Henriette and like what happens in those plays and see if I could kind of get a more solid grasp on it and um, maybe some of our listeners will as well. I think my podcast co host knows his Shakespeare reasonably well. Um, I could always use the histories, though. Yeah, the histories are rough. And uh, hopefully I don't say anything too terribly wrong here. I'm not a Shakespeare scholar. I am just a nerd with access to the internet. Um, <laughs> uh, all right. So the, the Henriad, if you're confused about how many plays it is, there's good reason. Um, it is a group of William Shakespeare's history plays. The Henriad is a term that's sometimes used to refer to a group of four plays, also known as a tetralogy. But some sources and scholars use the term the Henriad to refer to eight plays. So if you're confused, that's why. Mm. When the term is used in reference to four plays, they are talking about Shakespeare's second tetra tetralogy, uh, which is Richard II, Henry IV Part I, Henry IV Part II, and Henry V. 
But when the term is used in reference to eight plays, it's the four that I just mentioned, plus the four others that chronicle the War of the Roses. They are about a later period of history, but they were written earlier. So they're the first tetralogy. They are Henry VI, parts one, two, and three, and Richard III. And uh, tetralogy just means a set of four related works. So think like like a trilogy, but tetra, so four, mm-hmm. instead of tri. Um, that's probably obvious, but, you know, just to, just to lay it hurt. out there. Yep. So, and again, this is the confusing part. The first tetralogy was written first, but it is a chronologically later period of history. So the first tetralogy is the Henry VI and Richard III, and then the second tetralogy is Richard II, Henry IV, Henry V. The term Henriette was popularized by uh, Shakespeare scholar Alvin Kernan in his 1969 article, The Henriette, Shakespeare's Major History Plays, um, to suggest that the four plays of the second tetralogy, when considered together as a group, have coherence and characteristics that are associated with literary epic, large-scale heroic action involving many men and many activities, tracing the movement of a nation or people through violent change from one condition to another. That's a quote from his article. Mm. Uh, The action of the Henriad, he argues, follows the dynastic cultural and psychological journey that England traveled as it left the medieval world with Richard II and moved on to Henry V and the Renaissance. Politically and socially, he holds that it represents a movement from feudalism and hierarchy to the national state and individualism. Uh, he discusses the Henriette in psychological, spatial, temporal, and mythical terms. In mythical terms, he says the passage is from a garden world to a fallen world. Hmm. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, the, the Henriette is sort of meant to evoke that, like, these four plays together kind of make up, like, an epic journey. The source for most of the English history plays is uh, the well-known at the time, uh, Chronicle of English History by Raphael Hollinshed, um, which was published in 1577. So that's what Shakespeare sort of drew on for all of his uh, history plays. Shakespeare, as you all probably know, was living in the reign of Elizabeth I. She was the last monarch of the House of Tudor. Um, His history plays are often regarded as Tudor propaganda, um, uh, (laughs) uh, showing the dangers of civil war, celebrating the founders of the Tudor dynasty. That comes out more in the first tetralogy. So uh, Richard III depicts the last member of the rival House of York as an evil monster Mm -hmm. and portrays his successor, Henry VII, in glowing terms. Uh, I think that's less prominent in the second tetralogy, which is what we're focusing on today, but I thought it was worth noting. So with that, let's go to some summaries. We are just doing the second tetralogy. Let's do some summaries of these plays. I feel like I sort of have my head around kind of the basic outlines of them now. Hopefully I can summarize them in a way that helps you to have them a little bit more too. Um, So uh, Richard II also known as The Life and Death of King Richard II, uh, is a history play believed to have been written around 1595. It is based, as the title suggests, on the life of King Richard II of England, who ruled from 1377 to 1399. It chronicles his downfall and uh, the machinations of his nobles. Um, It covers just the last two years of Richard's life, beginning with 
King Richard sitting majestically on the throne, um, having been requested to arbitrate a dispute between Thomas Mowbray and Richard's cousin, Hen- Henry Bolingbroke, uh, who will later be uh, King Henry IV. Henry Bolingbroke has accused Mowbray of squandering money given to him by King Richard for the king's soldiers and of murdering Bolingbroke's uncle, the Duke of Gloucester. Uh, Bolingbroke's father, John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster, meanwhile, believes that it was Richard himself who was responsible for the murder in question. Um, After attempts to calm both men, Richard acquiesces um, and it's determined that they will resolve this matter via trial by battle, despite the objections of Bolingbroke's father, Gaunt. So there's a there's a tournament. The tournament scene is very formal. There's a long ceremonial introduction. Um, but just as the com- combatants are about to fight, Richard interrupts and sentences both to banishment from England, which sort of gives um, insight into some of his like the flaws of his character, right? Uh, mm. Sort of the the indecision and delay. Bolingbroke is originally sentenced to 10 years banishment, but then Richard II reduces this to six years because he sees his father's distraught face. Um, Mowbray is banished permanently. It's kind of arbitrary and unfair. It's another kind of insight into, you know, the problems with Richard II. And after that, uh, John of Gaunt dies and Richard seizes all of his land and money. This angers the nobility who accuse Richard of wasting England's money, taking Gaunt's money, um, which belongs by rights to his banished son, Bolingbroke using his funds for uh, capricious wars, taxing the commoners. Members of the nobility begin to help Bolingbroke to return secretly to England with a plan to overthrow Richard. Um, There are still subjects who are loyal to the king. When King Richard leaves England to attend to the war in Ireland, Bolingbroke seizes the opportunity to assemble an army. He invades the north coast of England he executes some of those loyal subjects, um, wins over the Duke of York, whom Richard has left in charge of the government in his absence. And on Richard's return, Bolingbroke not only reclaims his lands, uh, but lays claim to the throne. Hmm. He crowns himself King Henry IV. He has Richard taken prisoner. Another one of these loyalists, O'Merl, I'm not sure how you say this name, and others plan a rebellion against the new king. But the uh, the Duke of York, who's come over to uh, Henry Bolingbroke's side, discovers his son's treachery. He reveals it to Henry, who spares the son's life um, as a result of the intercession of the Duchess of York, um, but executes the other conspirators. Because of a understandable misinterpretation of something that uh, the newly crowned King Henry says, an ambitious nobleman goes to the prison where... Uh, Richard II is being held and murders him. Hmm. Yeah. King Henry repudiates the murderer and vows to journey to Jerusalem to cleanse himself of his part in Richard's death. Uh, and that is the plot of Richard II. Okay. Henry IV Part One is believed to have been written um, by about 1597. This play has three different groups of characters that interact slightly at first and then kind of come together in the climactic Battle of Shrewsbury. So first group, we have King Henry himself and his immediate council. Um, He's the engine of the play, but he's usually in the background. Um, Then there's a group of rebels uh, rebelling against uh, King Henry IV. The kind of leader of this group is Harry Percy, also known as Hotspur. And along with him, we have his father, the Earl of Northumberland, his 
uncle, Thomas Percy, Earl of Worcester. And then at the center of the play, we have the young Prince Hal, right? This is the Henriad. Uh, Prince Hal is the Henry who will become Henry V, the one for whom the Henriad is uh, is so named. Uh, young Prince Hal and his companions, Falstaff, Poins, Bardolph, and Petto. Some okay. some some Shakespeare scholars are, are over there snickering because I've never seen these plays and I'm guessing on some of the pronunciations. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, Henry Bolingbroke has succeeded to the throne of England. He is now King Henry IV. During his ascension, he was partially implicated in the murder of his cousin Richard II. We just covered that. And he has resolved to lead a crusade to Jerusalem, but his departure is prevented by news of disloyalty and civil unrest. Uh, his cousin Edmund Mortimer has been captured by Welsh rebel Owen Glinder. There's also fighting in the north between the Earl of Douglas and Harry Hotspur. King Henry regrets that his own eldest son, Henry, also known as Hal, spends most of his time in the taverns of London with vagabonds and ne'er-do-wells. Um, <sighs> ne'er-do-wells. Yes. Uh, the king demands Hotspur's allegiance and help against the Welsh, but Hotspur feels that the king has not been sufficiently grateful to his family for helping him in the past. Meanwhile, Prince Hal is at the tavern. He's at the Boar's Head Tavern, um, joking with his friend, the elderly and penniless Sir John Falstaff. Falstaff seeks to get money, seemingly by any means possible, to pay for his drinking habits. Um, he plots to rob a group of travelers, which is like really what you like in your knights who are hanging out with the heir to the throne. Mm -hmm. Together with his friends Bardolph and Nim, Falstaff carries out the robbery. At the same time, in disguise, Hal and his companion Poins attack Falstaff and capture the gold for themselves. Back at the tavern, they revealed to Falstaff that they wanted to trick him and were the ones who robbed him. Okay. Yeah. So uh, we've got this all this stuff with... Falstaff, I don't know, Falstaff is uh, a, an important character, important and beloved and uh, complicated. Hal is called back to court in the midst of civil war. Um, he and Falstaff roleplay the imminent conversation that's going to take place between the stern King Henry and the wayward Hal. Hal's pointed comments about his own troubled friends disconcert Falstaff. Uh, Hal sort of plans to... Um, eventually straighten up and you know kind of get on the straight and narrow and that that his uh his eventual conversion to like being a man of virtue will like make him seem all the better um <laughs> which is like not what you want to hear if you're one of the friends right <laughs> it's like <laughs> it's like when bart plans to take up smoking so he can quit <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah very much so hell protects uh falstaff from the law and restores the stolen money to its owners and uh, the civil wars become more serious as Hotspur joins his father in making an alliance with the king's other enemies all of them are jealous of King Henry's growing power uh, Hotspur sh sets out to Shrewsbury to meet his father's troop troops um, Hal returns to his father to make peace with him and the king gives him a command in the army setting out to meet Hotspur on the way Hal encounters Falstaff uh, with a few ragged men, Falstaff has enlisted these soldiers by taking bribes. Yeah, Falstaff has been taking bribes to let people out of military service. So he's got kind of a small and raggedy troop. The king offers to pardon and free Hotspur if he will withdraw his opposition to the throne. The northern troops have been unable to reach Hotspur. Hotspur is advised by his ally, the Archbishop of York, not to fight. But... 
Hotspur's other ally, Worcester, keeps the the knowledge of the king's offer of freedom uh, from Hotspur, and the Battle of Shrewsbury ensues. Hal fights valiantly in the battle, saving his father from harm in combat with Douglas, another rebel, rebel uh, and he even kills Hotspur. Falstaff pretends to be dead in order to avoid injury, um, but then after things have settled down, he comes across um, uh, the slain Hotspur and uh, stabs his corpse and then claims that he was the one who killed him. Um, in any case, the king's forces win the day. Worcester is condemned to death. Hal frees Douglas. And uh, Henry IV divides his forces to continue battling the rebellion. And that's kind of where this uh, this chapter draws to a close. That leads us to Henry IV Part Two, which was believed to have been written between 1596 and 1599. Its focus is on Prince Hal's journey toward kingship and his ultimate rejection of Falstaff. Unlike Part One, his and Falstaff's stories are almost entirely separate as the two characters meet only twice and very briefly. The Earl of Northumberland mistakenly hears that his son Hotspur is actually the victor of the Battle of Shrewsbury that concluded Henry IV Part One. Hotspur was the, the, the dead one that Falstaff was trying to take credit for having killed. So he's, he's not very much not alive. Um, the rebel lords meet together in council and resolve to oppose the king's forces led by Prince John, the king's second son, Hal's brother. Uh, but the word of Hotspur's death finally reaches them. Hotspur's mother and widow persuade him not to oppose Prince John's army. Sir John Falstaff has returned to London with praises after taking credit for killing Hotspur. The Lord Chief Justice criticizes him for his past crimes, but ultimately wishes Falstaff well, um, hmm. because he has just been called on to join a campaign for Prince John. But before he can go, Falstaff is arrested for his debts to the Boar's Head Tavern. <laughs> a fight between Falstaff and the officers ensues. The Lord Chief Justice, who returns to the tavern after hearing about the fuss, examines the fight. Falstaff persuades the owner of the tavern, Mistress Quickly, to make peace and lend him more money. <laughs> Later at the tavern, Falstaff, Nim, and Bardolph, those are some uh, some tavern buddies, names we've heard before, um, along with Falstaff's <clears throat> lady friend, uh, <laughs> Doll Tearsheet, are joined by two strangers. The strangers turn out to be Prince Hal and his friend Poins in disguise. I don't know why Falstaff keeps falling for this. Um, <laughs> he doesn't seem too bright. <laughs> no. Uh, Falstaff enjoys his evening with his friends, but the swaggering pistol comes to warn Falstaff he should have departed for the wars by now. When Falstaff rejects his assignment and ends up speaking badly of Hal, Hal and Poins reveal themselves and an argument is ensues. Another messenger comes to fetch Falstaff for the war. As Falstaff makes his journey, he passes through Gloucestershire. He finds his old friends Justice Shallow and Master Silence, who reminisce about their youthful days. Falstaff takes the weakest of uh, Shallow's pressed men, uh, like conscripted people, uh, to serve as soldiers, um, allowing others to buy themselves out. And he enjoys Shallow's hospitality before setting off to join the army. As the rebels gather to fight, Prince John agrees to look into their demands and offer a toast to future peace. The rebel armies disperse before Prince John orders the arrests of the rebel leaders for treason. Arriving late to the battle, Falstaff takes the last prisoner as the prince orders his forces back to London, where the king is very ill. The king is in the middle of giving advice to Hal's younger brothers when news of the peace arrives. He's close to death. As he sleeps, uh, Prince Hal arrives from the city. He finds his father apparently dead and mourning 
him and his position as heir, he, he takes the crown from the bedside into the next room. The king awakens and believes that Hal was just looking to become king. He gets upset, but the father and son make up um, before the king is moved into another room to prepare for, for death. When the news of King Henry IV's death and Hal's succession as Henry V reaches Gloucestershire, Falstaff sets off at once to London with Shallow. Uh, they travel night and day to reach London in time for the coronation, expecting to be given high office at court. Uh, but Falstaff is amazed and deeply hurt when Henry denies knowing him and banishes him from coming within 10 miles of his court. Henry calls a parliament, and Falstaff is left wondering if Hal will change his mind later. Uh, Prince John and the Lord Chief Justice anticipate the new king's wars in France, uh, which will take place in Henry V. So let's talk about Henry V. Okay. Um, yeah. Uh, so this is like, you know, the ascendancy of like Prince Hal steps into his role as as hero. One One thing that I came across as I was researching said, like, you have to understand that like Henry V is to elizabethan england as george washington is to like 20th century america mm -hmm. i can't speak to the truth of that i'm not an elizabethan england expert but like this is national hero like greatly significant leader you know sort of comes into his own story um so uh, henry v is believed to have been written around 1599 it tells the story of king henry v of england um focusing on events immediately before and after the Battle of Agincourt, uh, which was in 1415, uh, and was part of the Hundred Years' War. We've talked about the Hundred Years' War before when we were talking about Joan of Arc. Mm -hmm. Prince Hal has been crowned King Henry V. Um, a chorus introduces the play, celebrates his life, and then we move into kind of the, the plot of the play. Uh, Henry is seeking for evidence of his right to rule over France. And I talked about this like a year ago, but like the, the royal families were all, there were all of these like weird intermarriages and like complicated succession things such that there was a case to be made that King Henry was also the rightful monarch of France. The archbishop explains land laws to the king at his court um, then an ambassador arrives from the French king's son, the Dauphin, with a gift of tennis balls, which is meant to humiliate Henry for reasons, cultural reasons. It is to, it, the tennis balls are supposed to remind Henry of his reputation as a, like a careless pleasure seeker, right? Mm. Like it's, oh, uh, you just like to, you know, you just like to sport. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this like ignites Henry's rage. His response to this challenge is to set in motion the invasion of France. Um, yeah. The scene moves to Southampton, where a fleet prepares to sail. Henry has rejected many of his former friends in his ascension. Three of these former friends are caught plotting his death, and Henry condemns the conspirators to their own deaths in return. Meanwhile, uh, three other um, former rambunctious comrades um, who appeared in Henry IV, parts one and two, decide to join the army. Um, they set off for the war after hearing of the death of their leader, John Falstaff. Everyone believes that Falstaff died of a broken heart after the young King Henry uh, rejected him. The French king receives Exeter as Henry's ambassador. Then the English lay siege to and take the town of Harfleur. 
During this battle, Henry gives a rousing speech to his troops, uh, from which we get once more unto the breach, dear friends. Mm. He leaves a regiment of troops in Harfleur before traveling on towards Calais, gradually moving through the French countryside. Meanwhile, the French courtiers deride their invaders amongst themselves. Back at the French court, uh, Princess Catherine has an English lesson with her waiting woman. In the English camp, Henry's friend Pistol ridicules the Welsh captain Flulin. After many battles, the, the two armies start to prepare for combat near Agincourt. Um, the night before battle, the king disguises himself and visits the soldiers to learn from them and give them comfort before the day ahead. He prays that his responsibility will be rewarded by victory. As dawn approaches, the French generals are confident of their superior forces. Henry encourages his troops to fight for success. This is where the St. Crispin's Day speech is, if you have heard of that. That's where this one comes in. And he scorns a French envoy's invitation to surrender. The French army is defeated with heavy losses, um, while few die on the English side. King Henry thanks God for his victory and returns in triumph to London. But not before he, too, has an encounter with the Welsh captain, Flewellen. I hope I'm saying his name right. That's like... It's Welsh. Uh, There's no way of knowing. It's Welsh. Sorry. <laughs> uh, Henry makes peace with the French king and woos Prince Catherine before Princess Catherine before linking the two nations through marriage. Uh, the play ends with the chorus reminding the audience of how little time would pass before Henry's infant son inherited two war-torn nations a time which Shakespeare had already used as source material in the first tetralogy, um, which, uh, so like that, you know, he's kind of brought it full circle to Henry the sixth part one, which he had written about some time earlier. Hmm. So, um, so yeah, that's the, that's the Henry ad, right? The, um, it sort of revolves around um, Henry the fifth's rise to power from, you know, from being this kind of pleasure seeking, uh, irresponsible young guy to um, this great military hero. Cool. And uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. Hopefully, it was helpful. Um, well, although it was a <laughs> there's lot a more lot. than I knew. It's a lot. Yeah. All right. Well, are you ready for a quiz? Yeah. Okay. It's all Back about when Henry's, I was. Right? Yep. It is actually. Well, back when I was just starting to try and like remember like like cursory trivia knowledge of Shakespeare's hi history plays, I was like Richard Henry 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 Richard, which is like the <laughs> if you're if you're doing them in chronological order, right? It's Richard the second, the three Henry the it's Richard the second, the two Henry the fourths, Henry the fifth, the three Henry the sixth, and then Richard the third. So I figured we'd do Richards and Henrys. So here we go. Uh, question one. The co-founder of Amway is named Richard. If you don't know his full name based just on his uh, noted business accomplishment, um, then you might know it via his daughter-in-law, a controversial public figure. I don't know if I need to say more than that. Uh, what is the last name of Richard, the co-founder of Amway? If I do need to say more than that, let me know. Controversial public figure. She uh, became prominent um, moving from Michigan politics to national politics in 2017 and, uh, and resigned on January 7th of this year. I should know this. I can... Uh, and I... 
honestly have blocked out everything from before <laughs> the 21st or whatever of January. Um, mm, yeah, that's... Uh, <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure you're going to know this name. It's... I'm not going to get it. Just, yeah, I'll pass. DeVos. Oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so... Uh, Betsy DeVos's father-in-law is the co-founder of Amway. Wow. Uh, and that, that family is uh, sort of prominent in Michigan political life. Okay, question two. Uh, we're moving from Richards to Henry's. The quotation, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life and see if I could not learn what it had to teach, and not, when I came to die, discover that I had not lived, comes from a book by what American transcendentalist? Well, that's Henry David Thoreau. It sure is. Yes, that is from Walden. Mm -hmm. um, your uh, impression of Henry David Thoreau going to the woods and to Walden Pond to, to live deliberately and, you know, whatever, like, you know, experience solitude and nature and self-sufficiency and whatever may, may pale somewhat when you find out that his mom came to bring him sandwiches and do his laundry on a regular basis. True story. Oh. Uh, <laughs> How about that? Um, yeah. All right. Question three. Henry Tingle Wilde was a British naval officer who lived from September 21st, 1872 to April 15th, 1912. How did he die? He was a British naval officer? Yes. Died yes, in was. 1912. Uh, I'm going to guess he was aboard the Lusitania. Oh, not the Lusitania. Oh, the um, Titanic. Yes. Oh, my God. I. That's... <laughs> Yeah, that's even what I thought. Yeah. Like, like I was like, oh, the the obvious, like the obvious one. <laughs> I was like, Lusitania. Mm -hmm. Damn it. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, I think I have to zero that. Yeah, although you yeah, obviously yeah. meant the right thing. That's fine. Uh, yeah, he was. Um, what did they call the role? It was like the equivalent of the first mate. Yeah, on the Titanic. All right. Question four. Dr. Henry Walton Jones Jr., a professor of archaeology, noted for his hat, is a film character better known by what moniker? Indiana. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We're <laughs> uh, covering all the important Henrys here. <laughs> yes, I can tell. <laughs> I could tell you had it by the time I gave his full name. <laughs> uh, all right, you're at 20 points. Question five. Uh, this hero of American folklore is said to have measured his strength against that of a steam-powered rock drilling machine and won, but died with his hammer in his hand. Who is this legendary figure, the subject of a classic blues folk song? I believe that's Big John Henry. That is John Henry. Yes. There's been a lot more like media about John Henry than I had ever realized. There's been like, like he comes up in like, there have been a couple of movies, I think specifically about him. There have been novels about him. Like there's a lot of John Henry stuff that I didn't realize until I was uh, Googling Henry's. Well, he's a real um, American hero. Yeah. All right. Uh, you are at 30 points. And we're going to call this final category pop music. Mm, should we call it po uh, we'll call pop music, like in the learned league sense of it's not classical music, not the... Like, sure. Okay. Yeah. 
Uh, I mean, I'll bet it all, because it's a music question, all so right. I can zero out here. All right. I, 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 uh, I have a good feeling about this one. Richard Starkey is the given name of someone who became famous after replacing Pete Best in a noted foursome. What is Richard Starkey's stage name? Well, I, I believe that would be Ringo Starr. That is Ringo Starr. Yes. Yeah, I, did, I didn't know that he was Richard Starkey. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but now I do. And, mm-hmm. uh, and so do you. Do. All right. So, no, you did not zero out. You're finishing with 60 points. Um, All right. That's good. I have a yeah. stupid boat. <laughs> stupid boat that couldn't stay up. Which one is the Lusitania? I can never. Uh, It was later. Also, also 1915. Yeah. Yeah. It was during World War Two, or World War One. God, what is wrong with me? Not night. Sorry, I said also 1915. April 15, 1912 is the Titanic. Right. And then the Lusitania is uh, May 7th, 1915. Yeah, that's right. And then I feel like there's another, there's a bunch of ships that sank that I can never remember. All I can ever remember is the Titanic and the Lusitania. Well, the Britannic, oh, wow. I think, also sank. Mm. It doesn't matter. Okay. All right. Well, listeners, um, Kyle and I can't keep our ship wrecks and sinkings straight. Um, but, <laughs> you know, maybe one of these days we will. Uh, in any case, <laughs> thanks for listening. And thanks, Kyle, for making a podcast with me. Of course. Uh, y'all make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a rating or review if you would be so kind. Um, if you want to check out our Patreon, it's at patreon.com slash potent potables. And uh, if you have friends who like Jeopardy, let them know where to find us. You can all find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpodablescast at gmail.com, and our website is potentpod.com. We'll be back next week with another week of Jeopardy. And until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Bye.